If you would, please turn in your copy of God's Word to Ephesians and chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we will be hearing from verses 15 down through 23. Let us give our attention to God's Word, for this is His holy Word. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. Let us go to our God in prayer. Our gracious and heavenly Father, you who are Lord God of heaven and earth, we come before you and ask now that you would be pleased to bless this time, that you would have mercy upon us, that we would hear and that we would obey your word. Father, we thank you that you have had mercy upon us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have made him our mediator, that you have made him the head of the church, that he is our prophet, priest, and king. What a glorious and wondrous Savior that we should have Jesus Christ as our champion, as our king, as the one who leads us, as the one who commands us as the one who offered himself in our place on the cross, dying for our sins, that we might be reconciled to you. Father, what a wondrous thing that he should be our Savior. Father, we thank you that he has accomplished our salvation, that he has risen from the dead, ascended on high, sits now at your right hand, and that you have with him poured out the Holy Spirit upon your church and that you are gathering into your church people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Father, what a glorious and wondrous thing it is to hear these truths proclaimed from your word, and not only that, but to be brought into the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. What a wondrous thing that we enjoy the privilege that you have given us. Father, we ask that you would bless this time, and especially that you would strengthen uh, Pastor Corey Smith as he comes to speak to us. Father, may we be edified and built up and encouraged. Be with him and strengthen him as he speaks to us. Give him grace. Give him mercy. Fill him with your spirit, we ask. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being here tonight. We thank you for the joy and the uh, time that we have here tonight. May you be glorified in all this, exalted and lifted up, O God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
It's my privilege at this time to introduce uh, Brother Corey Smith to you, uh, a, a brother that we know and love from one of our churches. He has been serving as the pastor of Heritage Baptist Church in Shreveport, Louisiana for two years now, and he and his wife Beth have been married for nine years. They have two kids and one on the way, so congratulations. Pastor Smith has an MDiv from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and is currently working on his PhD there at that same seminary as well. Let us hear him as he brings God's word to us now. Brother, will you come? All right, thank you, Matt. Uh, what a, it's an honor and I'm humbled to be here to open up God's word for us tonight. What a privilege it is. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Last year during our GA, we began expositing chapter 26 of our confession of faith. Chapter 26 of the church, which is the longest chapter of our confession. We've been going through it paragraph by paragraph. This evening, we've come to paragraph 4 of our confession. My goal tonight is to unpack the doctrine that's taught in this paragraph of our confession. And my primary biblical text for us tonight is Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, hear the word of the Lord. And he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. Praise God for his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you thankful, rejoicing, rejoicing in Christ for who he is, for what he has done for us in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection his ascension, and now his, his session as he's seating at, sitting at your right hand. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he is the image of you, of the invisible one, the one who is spirit, that he is the firstborn of all creation, that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Lord, I pray that you, call, you cause all of us to draw all of our attention, our hearts and minds, away from the business that we've just had as an association, away from all the great activities that you can do here in this, this great town, and that you draw all of our attention to Christ, who is worthy of all of our praises. He's worthy of all of our attention for all of our lives, and especially tonight, as we come to worship you through him, through your word. Pray that you would work through us by the power of your spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So tonight, the subject of this sermon will not be the church. The subject of this sermon will be the head of the church. We will be Christ. Of the 15 paragraphs of this chapter in our confession, this is the only one, paragraph 4, that's primarily a teaching on the doctrine of Christ. Yes, it's placed in this chapter on the church because it's directly related to the church and its operations. For it's concerning who is the authority of the church. 
It's Christ. And there's great benefit to studying other theological doctrines of the church. We'll be doing that for the rest of this week, looking at the church's mandate from Scripture, looking at the the membership of the church. But tonight, as we begin this week of worship, and we've already begun the business meeting, but as we begin this time of worship, we're turning our attention not to the bride of Christ, but to Christ himself. And the main idea of tonight's sermon is this, this theological truth that Christ is the head of the church, that Christ is the ultimate and final authority in the church. Now, before we look at our passage, Colossians chapter one, on what what makes Christ uniquely fit to be our head, I want to make it clear for all of us that Christ is not just simply the head of the church. The Bible speaks more about that, more of that Christ is not just the head of the church. He is the head of all things. And this is important for this is emphasized actually in verses 16 through 17, right before our passage tonight. Yes, Christ is the head of the church, but he's more than that. Almost each time throughout the New Testament, when when the when it's mentioned that Christ is the head of the church, usually right before it, it's mentioned how Christ is the head of all things. He's the head over all things, over all of creation. Now, what does that include, you might ask? Well, after researching all the original languages, it means all things, all people, all creation, everything. Christ is head over all. You name it, he's head over it. Let me help you even more to understand this. The Bible says this in Colossians 2 verse 10. And you have been filled in him, in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. All rule and authority. Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 through 20, 21 through 22, for above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, all rule, all authority, all things under Christ's subjection. This includes the spiritual principalities at work in the world today, both angels and fallen angels. Christ is head over the angels. This was a temptation in the early church to worship angels. Folks do it today. You don't worship angels for Christ is greater. Christ is the head over the angels. Why worship the created over the creator, the head? This is emphasized in Hebrews chapter 1. In that chapter, it talks about how Christ is far greater than all things, but especially angels. It ends, Hebrews chapter 1 ends with this rhetorical question. And to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? None of the angels. None of them. It's only Christ. Throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, when the angels come, what do they come? They come to worship Christ, to declare his message, not the other way around. Christ is head not only over the angels, but also the fallen angels. Christ is the head, meaning the authority, the supreme authority over even the demons. We see this throughout Christ's ministry in the Gospels. The demons obey Christ. There's no talking back to Christ. Jesus simply rebukes the demon and they obey. They must receive permission from the sovereign one, from the head over all things before they leave. Even the demons obey and tremble at Christ over the head, the head of overall over things. And it's not just the angels, but Satan himself, the ancient serpent, the adversary. He's under subjection of Christ. Before Satan can afflict Job, what does he have to do? He must ask God permission. 
Christ is the head over all spiritual powers, whether angels, fallen angels. He's also the head of over not just those in the church, but those outside the church. It's not like Christ's reign is only over the church and everything outside of it is for others. It's not that Christ just reigns over the church and everything else is for grabs. Everything else outside the church is for grabs. No, Bible says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Not every Christian. Who's the head of every man, every woman, every person? It is Christ. Not just, he's not just the head over the pastors, the deacons, the church members. He's the head over every man, every single person in human history. Christ has supreme authority over. Every human being will bow to Christ, whether out of love and honor and worship through salvation or out of judgment. This includes every human being to ever live. The Bible says this in Romans 14, 9, for to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. He's the Lord, the head over those who have died and those who are living now and those who will live in the future. Now, I know this was kind of a longer introduction before we get into our text, but I just want to show you from the scriptures that Christ is the head over all, all rule, all authority, not just the church. Christ is the head over all powers, all creation, all created things. He sustains them by the power of his word. I mean, this teaching can be summarized by the verses right before our passage tonight. Colossians 1 verses 15 through 17, where it says this. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities All things were created through Christ and for Christ. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. That is our Lord. That is Christ. And the Bible says he's also the head of the church. We see this in verses 18 through 20 of Colossians 1. And these verses give us three descriptions of of what makes Christ just uniquely fit to be our head. And all glory be to Christ. And these are the three descriptions that we find in our passage tonight. Christ is uniquely fit to be the head of the church because he's the firstborn from the dead. Because he's the fullness of God indwelt. And because of his blood shed upon the cross. That's why he's the head of the church. Firstborn from the dead. He's the fullness of God indwelt. His blood shed upon the cross. As we walk through each of these, may we just glory in Christ tonight, who's our head, head of the church. So the first description we have in verse 18 is that Christ is the head of the church, for Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Let me read this passage for us. The Bible says this, and Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. It is here in verse 18 we have this statement, this theological proclamation that Christ is the head of the body, that Christ is the head of the church. This phrase, we've read a few of those passages already, it's repeated throughout the New Testament. Now after this explosive theological statement that Christ is the head, the Bible then says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that everything, in everything he might be preeminent. Christ is perfectly suited 
as the head of the church because he's the beginning of it. He's the firstborn from the dead. This language of firstborn has already been used in this passage, speaking of Christ being the firstborn of creation. Not that he was the first thing created, for he was not created. He is God. He's the incarnate son of God, second person of the Trinity. He created all things. He's the firstborn of creation because he has preeminence over all of creation because he created all things. However, here we see a transition in verse 18. Jesus is not just the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn of the dead. Now, what's meant by that phrase? What does that have to do with Christ being the head of the church, that he's the firstborn from the dead? It means Christ has preeminence even over death. He rose from the grave and conquered sin. He conquered death. This is what many of us celebrated at Resurrection Sunday a few Sundays ago. Christ's resurrection proved and vindicated that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of sinners. Christ rose from the grave, and by doing so, it means everything he said was true. Every single word of it. Every miracle was true. Every teaching was true. Everything Jesus said and did was absolutely true. All of it. The resurrection of Christ changes everything. A dead man came back to life. He's still alive. Jesus is alive. You know who's not alive? Pilate. Pilate's dead. Herod is dead. But Jesus, he's alive. He rose from the grave. He's the firstborn from the dead. This theological truth of Christ's resurrection has everything to do with the church. Now, don't take my word for it. Hear from God's word. The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says this, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's scripture. That's the Apostle Paul speaking. Did you catch that? If Christ had not been raised, if he was not the firstborn from the dead, my preaching, your preaching is worthless. It's worthless. Your faith right now is futile. If Christ was not the firstborn from the dead, we should all go now immediately and go shut the doors of our churches and use that building for a goodwill or something else. Arpka should dissolve right now, today, if Christ did not raise from the dead. We should close it down right now, do a business meeting after this sermon, and say, let's dissolve it. Let's put it away. Christ didn't rise from the dead. We should be pitied. But no, he did. He, he was raised from the dead. And this is the most startling point about the Apostle Paul here that he makes that if Christ had not been raised from the dead, it's not just your preaching is in vain or you to, you're to be pitied or you should shut your church down. The, the most convicting or the most surprising of it that he says in this passage is that you would still be dead in your sins. And that's the worst news. The worst news isn't that our preaching is worthless or our church would be closed down. The worst news is that we would be dead in our sins. We would have no hope. There would be no forgiveness of sins. 
There would be no changed hearts, no new creations here. You could think of it this way. The church only exists because of Christ's resurrection, because he is the firstborn from the dead. Without Christ, there is no church. There's no discussion about the head of the church because there would be no church to argue about. Right. If Christ did not raise from the dead, there would be no London Baptist Confession of Faith 1689. There would be no chapter 26 if Christ had not been raised. This is why the analogy of the head is so perfect. You sever a head from the body. What happens to the body? It's dead. It's lifeless. You can sever other members from the bodies and still be living, maybe just not in a very healthy way, but no head, no body, no life. Similarly, no Christ, no church. Can't exist without him. Now you may say, well, can't we have Christ but him just not be the head? Can we have Christ as the mouthpiece of our church or of Arca? Can he just be the hands and our feet? No, that's like saying you want hands without a head. It won't work. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is uniquely fit to be the head of the church because he's the firstborn from the dead. He was raised to life so that we may not be dead in our sins, but may be alive to Christ. I mean, this is why baptism is such an important part in the life of the church. In your baptism, you are proclaiming this truth that Christ has caused you who once were dead in your sins now alive to Christ. You, your sins were buried and carried away, and now you're raised to walk in newness of life. Every believer has experienced this new birth, have, have become a new creation because of our head, because of the Lord Jesus. He is our head, for he is the only one with authority to lay down his life and to bring it back again. And because of this, not only are we new creations spiritually, but Him being the firstborn from the dead is a foreshadowing of what's to come for the future of God's people. This is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, because Christ has been raised, we too, after death, our bodies will be raised. Our bodies will be glorified. The Lord Jesus may have been the firstborn from the dead, but he won't be the last. And praise his holy name for that. So Christ is the head of the church. He's the authority For he is the one who has authority over physical death and spiritual life. This is why he's uniquely fit to be the head of the church. Now, not not only is is he the firstborn from the dead, but he's the fullness of God indwelt. This is seen in verse 19. The Bible says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Christ. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I mean, do you see the glories and riches of Christ here, brothers and sisters? Hear hear these descriptions of Christ from his word. Just just glory in these. The Bible says this. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The Bible says this, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. But Christ, he has made him known. The Bible says this. Then I saw the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scrolls or to look into them. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he's conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And we had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song singing this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands, saying this with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying this, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Now, brothers and sisters, I can go on and on about Christ from God's word, and how he's the fullness of God indwelt. And our same reaction should be like theirs, falling down and worship. And this is Christ. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is God. He's the word. He's the Logos, is God. He's the incarnate Son of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. The Lord Jesus is the fullness of God. He's the presence of God in human form. That is why we don't need a temple anymore. For Christ came and dwelt among us. He has given us his spirit to dwell within us. And only he is the worthy one. The one who is worthy to take the scroll and break its seals to reveal and to carry out God's eternal decrees. Jesus has all authority over all of history because he's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. This is why Christ is the head of the church. Are you worthy to break the seal? Who, who in here is worthy to break the seal? Are you the radiance of the glory of God? 
Are you the exact imprint? No one else is the head of the church because no one else is worthy. He is the only one worthy, worthy of being the head of the church. He's the head of human history, and he's the head of the church. He's the fullness of deity and humanity. That's why he's the head of the church. The Lord Jesus is God incarnate. Everything that is true about God is true about Christ. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, holy, just, you name it. He's truly God and truly man. He's the only one who has the right of being the head of the church, for he is God. He's the fullness of God indwelt. Lastly, the Lord Jesus is uniquely fit to be the head of the church because he's the firstborn. Not only that he's the firstborn from the dead, he's the fullness of God indwelt. But lastly, because he's the savior of his people, we see this in verse 20. The Bible says this, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ is the head of the church, for he is the one who ransomed, who bought the church with his blood. Without Christ, we would not be the church, but we would be worse off. We would be slaves to sin. Not only, not only would there be no body and we would be dead in our sins, but we would be slaves to it. We'd be children of wrath. Who else could have rescued you from the bondage of sin? Yourself? Your own good works? Your pastor? The government? Who could have done it? Nobody. No one could have done it. Only Christ. He is the only one who is both the, the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice. See, the, the priests of old, they needed to make sacrifices for themselves first, and they needed to make sacrifices for the people in the Holy of Holies. They needed their sins atoned for. As the author of Hebrews states, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men sin their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Christ is not like any other priest, for he's without sin. He's perfectly righteous, full of righteousness. He's the fullness of God and dwelt in man. In addition, Hebrews states this, the former priests were many in number, because they are prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. They died. Jesus is alive. He's alive forevermore. The Bible says this, consequently, he is able to save us to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through Christ, since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, Christ is alive right now. You can go to him right now in prayer. He's interceding for you right now, believer. We have a living hope. You could say a living head. It's not that Christ, it's not only that Christ was a perfect priest. He's the perfect one that's speaking to God on our behalf, interceding for us. But he's also the perfect sacrifice that he shed his blood for us to make peace between man and God, to reconcile his people to himself. See, the blood of bulls and goats never could atone for sins. They were just shadows pointing to the one who would come and take away the sins of the world, the Lamb of God, Christ Jesus. Only he could do it, for he's the only perfect sacrifice, truly God, truly man, 
Only he could atone for the sins of his people. See, Christ is the head of the church because he died for the church. He ransomed. He gave his life up as a ransom for the church. He bought the church with his blood because he loves the church. That's our head. You want to know why Christ is the head of the church? Look to Calvary. Look to Golgotha's heel. That's why Christ is the head of the church. When Christ drank the full cup of God's wrath to the last drop, taking the infinite holy fury of God for a finite period of time upon the cross, that's why Christ is the head of the church. Makes me think of right before Christ's week of passion. You know, you have James and John, and really their mother is the one that goes to him to request for their sons to sit at his right and left hand in glory. They want these positions of power and authority. They want to be the ones closest to Jesus. They didn't want the throne, but at least get us real close to the throne. Jesus' response, he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? You want to sit near me on the throne, but can you drink what I'm about to drink on the cross? Will you drink the cup of God's wrath for the sins of the people? They were just asking to sit near Jesus, thinking of someone asking to sit to Christ being near to his head, being near to the throne. It may seem like a simple question, but it's actually blasphemous. Christ is the only one who's sitting on that throne. Christ has ultimate authority over the church, for he died for her. He purchased her. He redeemed us out of slavery. Again, the Bible says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, But with what? With the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The Bible also says the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, for you are bought with the price. Christ is the head of the church, for he shed his blood and purchased the church from slavery. He atoned for our sins. He reconciled us to God. Now now that we've seen who is the head of the church and why, Let's consider those who are not the head of the church for a little bit. If Christ is the head of the church, that means no one else is. The church is not some two or three-headed monster with two or three heads. No, it has one head. That's Christ. Therefore, by deduction, that means many things for you today. First off, you're not the head of the church. You. 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 You're not the head of the church. Doesn't matter who you are. You're not the head of the church. Doesn't matter if you're a pastor, if you've been a pastor for 60 years at the same church. You're not the head of that church. Doesn't matter if you're even a senior pastor. You're as much as the head of the church as you are the head of the Milky Way galaxy. Okay? That's not your church. The church the Lord has placed you in, that's not your church. That's Christ's church. That's Christ's flock. Now, because Christ is the head of the church, he's the one who tells us how the church is to be governed and function and ordered. In his word, he delegates this authority to under shepherds, to pastors, to qualified men. But here's the application for us tonight, especially pastors. Because Christ is the head of the church, you are to care for his sheep, not like a hired hand, but as an under shepherd. Hear what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians as he's or it says to the Ephesian leaders before he leaves them in the book of Acts, he says this, Therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, 
For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which she obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. But do you see the implication here that the Apostle Paul, as he's leaving Ephesus, this church that he's cared for, pastored for, as he's given his last words to these other elders. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying because Christ is the head of the church and, and shed his blood for her, you need to care for her, elders in Ephesus. You need to care for her because she's precious. We are to feed her the entire counsel of God's word. We are to give her the whole buffet everything, all food groups to be healthy. He says, pay attention to yourselves, to your own life, to your doctrine. Look after the sheep. This is what a shepherd does. He's made you pastors over it. He has delegated that authority to you to care for the flock. For he obtained her by his blood, blood bought flock. That means you defend her with your life against the wolves. You do what he would do for the sheep. And he laid down his life for her. What would you do as a pastor for your sheep? You lay down your life for them. You feed, you feed her. You protect her. And pastor, pastors, you know this, but you will be held accountable by the head of the church, by Christ on how you cared for the sheep, how you cared for the body, how you cared for his bride. First Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, when the true senior pastor appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Shepherd the flock of God, willingly, eagerly, be examples to them. And here's the great promise of faithful pastors. When that chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. When he appears, he will place that crown upon your head to you, faithful pastor. To you, pastor, who faithfully feeds the sheep, faithfully cares for the sheep, who's maybe ignored by the world, ignored by everyone, treated with disdain by others. When Christ comes back, when the head of the church comes back, he's going to place a crown on your head. An unfading crown of glory. The Lord Jesus will crown you. Now we all know once we get those crowns what we'll do. We're going to take those crowns off quickly and lay them at his feet. Because he's the head. He's the head of the church. So pastor, be faithful. Don't worry about the acclaim of this world. Concern yourself with the head of the church. He's the authority. It's Christ. Christ rewards and values faithful pastors, ones who are running the marathon, ones who are in the trenches, ones with worn out speakers, so to speak. The ones who have been plodding alone, the ones who are faithful to care for the sheep. Now, I also want to add this. Not only are you not the head, I know that's double negative, but you're not the head. But also no one in your church is the head. And don't treat anyone like that either. For their good, for your good. Don't treat other pastors, other deacons as the head of the church because they're not. 
Don't treat your most godly member or the oldest member or the most gifted member or the most liked member or the member who gives the most financially or the most outspoken member. Don't treat any of them like the head of the church because they're not. Instead, pastor each of them, shepherd each of them to see the glory and majesty of the true head of Christ through his word. We can add this. Arvka is not the head of the church. The AC, the chairman of the AC, I guess now moderator, committees, you name them, whatever. ARPCA, General Assembly, when they make a vote on the floor as a majority unanimously, is not the head of the church. No matter what they say, no matter what is said then, that's not the head of the church. Also, don't treat the state or the government as the head of the church. Remember, at the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned how Christ is the head, not just of the church. He's the head over all things. What's included under all things? The state. And I know that gets us Baptists and especially Americans really antsy and nervous. Separation of church and state. Yes, but the whole reason we have separation of church and state is to keep the state from encroaching on the church, not the church on the state. Christ has authority over heaven and earth. The government only has power because Christ has delegated power to it. And one of the main roles of the government that the Bible says to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil. Well, how will the government know what is good and what is evil? How will they know that there's only two genders? How will they know that every life matters for every person is made in the image of, the, in, in the image of God? Those in the womb, outside the womb, no matter the level of melanin, how will they know what marriage is? The church must speak. In addition, the government does not have the power to dictate how we are to worship. They're not the head of the church. We can't act like they are because they're not. Christ is the head of the church, not Caesar, not the government. And we must pastor our people to see this. Christ is the head. His word is what we follow when it comes to the authority of the church. The authority of the church rests in Christ and in Christ alone, in his word. Lastly, I want to make some application that's explicitly made in our confession of faith in paragraph 4 of chapter 26. After, after making clear the doctrine that Christ is the head of the church, our Baptist forefathers then wrote this. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin, the son of perdition, that exalts himself in the church against Christ, and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. If Christ is the head of the church, then the Pope is not. That, that's a clear doctrine. This section of the paragraph is probably the most controversial statement of the confession of faith for readers today. It's probably the, the part of our confession of faith that gets the most exceptions made by others they agree, they agree with everything else in the confession, but that whole pope is the Antichrist. That, that's a disagreement. But the doctrine taught here is clear. The pope is not the head of the church. The pope is that Antichrist. Now, the first part of that doctrine should not be an argument. The pope's not the head of the church. That's an easy one. That, that point's made pretty clearly from Colossians 1, 18 through 20. He's not the head of the church because no one can be the head of the church. It's only Christ. But what about that doctrinal part about the Pope being the Antichrist? This is where the controversy is. Some may think that that language is too harsh. Antichrist? 
But it doesn't have to be that way. Think of it this way. Look at the historical context of our confession of faith. The Pope of Roman Catholicism, think of 1600s, and today, really, claims to be the head of the church. Just by claiming to be the head of the church is blasphemous. But even worse, it's a professing Christian who says they are a follower of Christ, usurping explicitly and telling all that they are the head of the universal church. They are the head of all believers. And brothers and sisters, this is sinister. This is what makes it anti-Christ. The spirit of the anti-Christ as seen in the New Testament. It's against Christ. And what makes the anti-Christ anti-Christ is that it's coming from one who's supposedly within. But they're against Christ. That's what makes it so diabolical and dangerous, like all heresies. It begins from within, and it's there to lure the sheep away, to draw them away from Christ. And here's the great blasphemy. The Pope claims to be the vicar of Christ, that they have Christ's authority, that they are the ones who represent who are the representation of God to mankind, that the Pope is the mediator between God and man. This is anti-Christ. This is anti-gospel. It's it's against the church. The Pope's not the firstborn from the dead. All those Popes have died. This Pope's going to die. The Pope's not not fullness of God and dwelt in man. He's not the radiance of, of the glory of God. He didn't die on the cross for sins. He didn't drink the cup of God's wrath. So we must rebuke the Pope, the Catholic Church, for this blasphemous stance and anyone who claims to be the head of the church. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one way of salvation, by grace, through faith alone in Christ alone. There's only one head of the church, Christ. And it's only his word that is the final authority of faith and practice in the church. It's not man's tradition It's not a word from the Pope. So the main point is this. Christ is the head of the church, not the Pope, not the state, not the pastors, deacons, elder board, deacon committee, association, denominations. Christ is the head of the church. For he alone accomplished salvation for sinners through his shed blood. He alone is God in the flesh. He alone is the firstborn from the dead. All glory to the Lamb. And our response should be, to bow and worship, to obey his every word in regard to the calling, institution, order, government of the church. We do what he says because he's the head. And also one last application for us in response. I mean, it's worship, it's obedience to his word. And one of those ways of obedience is actually explicitly stated in our confession of faith in this paragraph. One of the scripture references is Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. You know this passage, the Great Commission. It's cited as a scripture reference for this paragraph of Christ being the head of the church. And and that makes sense if you know that passage, you know the Great Commission. The basis, the foundation of the Great Commission is verse 18, Matthew 28. All authority, not some, but all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to who? To whom? To Christ. Christ has all the authority. And it's because of this, our response should be verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples. If he's the head over all things, he's got all authority, he's the head over the church, then we need to go and make disciples of all nations. How does King Jesus build his church? 
through the means of gospel proclamation, the Bible tells us, proclaiming the gospel. How will the sheep, the law, how will they hear? How will they know? How will they believe? We must proclaim the gospel. We must send out. We must send out others to preach the gospel. That's how. Christ is the head of the church, and he will bring his sheep in through the proclamation of his word and the drawing of his spirit. So what's our application, our response as churches, as Christians, as first, just just a glory in Christ tonight to worship him, to eat, read his Bible, everything, to breathe it, and then to to proclaim it because he's got all authority. Let's proclaim it to all people. Proclaim it to the state, to everyone in our neighborhood, our family members. This is who Christ is. He's the head over all things, head of the church. Let me close this in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for him as our head. Lord, we see this as as nothing but your grace and mercy to us. We don't deserve Christ. We don't deserve him as our head. We don't deserve life. If it were left to us, we would be dead in our sins. But all glory to the Lamb, that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. All glory to you, that Christ is truly God and truly man. And that he lived the life that we could not live and died the death deserved for us and rose three days later. Lord, I pray that you cause these gospel truths of who Christ is, what he's done for us, that you not cause our hearts to be numb to these simple gospel truths, but instead that you would inflame them once again, cause us to see the glory and majesty of Christ more than ever before tonight by the power of your spirit. Praise things in Christ's name.